You are listening to a podcast from Providence Reformed Baptist Church. If you would like to listen to more of our sermons, please visit our website at providencewi.org. Thank you, Anne. And, and it's so good to have you here. We're, we're, um, some of us are, um, some of our number are, I hope, uh, praising the Lord, uh, perched many feet up in a tree, and, uh, but our, uh, we have so much to be thankful for. And on this, and, and on a weekend or a week, a, a season like this, so long ago, uh, there were hundreds of thousands of Jews gathered in Jerusalem. And they were gathered because of the Passover, annual festival, in memory of what God had done. over 1,500 years earlier, 1,600 years earlier, when he had delivered the people from Egypt. And so there was food, there was festivity, there were relatives that got together that hadn't seen each other perhaps for the, for the entire year since the last time. And yet in the middle of this time of great thanksgiving, the motive for Thanksgiving was a very somber event, and it was the Passover, and it was the time when the, when the death angel had passed over the Israelites, who had marked their doorposts with the blood of an innocent lamb. The meal included actually eating the lamb, but the shed blood of the lamb was a marker and it it was a way of it was it was an indication to the angel of death to leave their firstborn alive in each family and so they remembered that and at this time at the time uh, and and so we we this week we gather for thanksgiving and although uh, across our nation we have seen progressively less and less remembrance of who it is that actually supplies our needs. Yet I trust that we as believers will remember that it is God who, who supplies all things so richly. And so at this point, we have, we've been, we're going through John and the... One of the benefits of going through scripture uh, in order is that you don't leave out things. And um, it's good because it helps you to preach and teach things that if it were just up to my tastes or my preferences, maybe I would pick texts that I like. But um, I like this text just fine, but, I, but it's easy to jump around. And this, this forces you to do things uh, that perhaps you wouldn't uh, think of otherwise. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to see if I can get rid of this um, slide here. I feel like it's a distraction. Let's see here. I don't know how to do it, so I won't worry about it. Um, it might take me too long. Oh, here, let's try this. Thank you, Andy. Very good. Um, yeah, I... Uh, 
one time when I was preaching in Argentina, I got up to preach and they, um, they started playing this music, this background music, and uh, it got happy and it got sad and it had absolutely nothing to do with what I was saying. And uh, I'm glad that this is, this is not so distracting. So anyway, it's gone. So now we're back to this. And, but one of the, uh, one of the, one of the uh, problems with verse by verse is it kind of, you come to this, you come to a time like Thanksgiving or you t- come to a time like Christmas and it doesn't always seem to fit the tone. But um, as we look through this text, we're going to see that it has a lot to do with Thanksgiving. There's a lot to be thankful for in what is happening here. And so what I would like to do is uh, call, call us to our text, which is uh, John 19, John chapter 19, verses uh, it's actually the text I was assigned is 8 through uh, 16. But what I'm going to do is very quickly, uh, we're going to step back and take a run up to it uh, to, put the, to put it in context. And so I'll start reading at uh, verse 1. We're going to summarize this very quickly and, and then draw some, some conclusions and, and some uh, applications for our life from this. So, uh, and I will just read uh, each verse. Uh, a short section of verses and then comment on it as we follow through what is happening uh, in John's account of what was happening with Jesus. So John 19 verse one says, Pilate took Jesus and scourged him and the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they began to come up to him and say, hail king of the Jews and to give him blows in the face. And Pilate came out again and said to them, that is to the Jews, their their leaders, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus therefore came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And so Pilate here, uh, having released Barabbas to them, he uh, he has found no reason in the previous chapter, no reason to condemn Jesus. Uh, they have given him no, Jesus himself has uh, confessed to no, um, no crime. Uh, they have, the Jews have convinced him of no crime. There is nothing there that he can see to base a judgment on. And he's had that very interesting encounter with Jesus where Jesus says, my kingdom is a kingdom of truth. And I came into the, reason, into the world for that reason. And Pilate has attempted to release him. And he first does it by saying, well, here, here, you choose between Barabbas and Jesus. Barabbas, an obvious criminal guilty of, of uh, sedition or insurrection against the government, also evidently a murderer. Uh, he thought, well, that should be a pretty easy choice. But they, they call out for Barabbas, the mob does. And so now Pilate, in verse 19, and, and uh, pastor preached on this last week, So I'll just quickly go over it so we can run up to verse 8. So Pilate, uh, probably just to teach Jesus a lesson, you know, there must have been some reason why this happened, I guess. And um, he must have done something. And um, so just give him a little whipping and send him on his way. This was not a whipping to kill. Uh, There were whippings that were so brutal, but this was obviously, this was not, this was nothing, this was no light matter, but it was not designed to cripple or incapacitate. It was just, well, we'll just uh, give him a good whipping. And he probably also thought, well, we'll teach Jesus a lesson. 
And uh, the Jews, they'll be happy when they see that we kind of gave this guy, we gave him a little, uh, we gave him a little punishment and they'll, they'll probably be fine. I think that was probably his play. And so he uh, and the soldiers make fun of him and they mock him. And then he brings him out. Okay, now verses six and seven, and it says, when therefore the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And again, they cry out for his crucifixion. And Pilate calls their bluff by saying, well, then you crucify him. Why is he calling their bluff? Because they are not legally authorized to crucify. The Jews could not crucify. The Romans reserved to themselves the right of capital punishment in the Roman Empire. The Jews occasionally would have something would kind of, we could say, spontaneously erupt like a stoning. And the Roman authorities wouldn't get too upset about that as long as it didn't lead to civil unrest. And so they kind of look the other way when the Jews would stone someone. But the Jewish authorities wanted the heavy hand of Roman justice to be brought down on Jesus. And Pilate is reminding them there is no offense for which he can be crucified. So you go ahead. But they say, no, we can't do that. The, and this leads us to verse 7 where the Jews answered him and said, we have a law. And by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. And in this statement, they reveal what is in their deepest heart of hearts. And I'm going to return to that in just a moment. Uh, this statement that he said he is the son of God turns out to be extremely significant as we interpret the text. And as we look at, when we look at how uh, John's program, as he goes through his gospel, we're going to see that this uh, idea of his being the son of God and, and what that really means is very, very significant. But we'll return to that. Interestingly, and now we start the text that was, was given to me today, verse 8, Pilate heard this statement. That is when he heard them say, Jesus is the son of God, he was the more afraid. Pilate is afraid. Why would he be afraid? Well, he's not a Jew. He's not afraid of the Jewish law. The Jews held that Jesus was committing blasphemy by saying, making himself equal to God. Pilate doesn't believe that. But it is certainly true that in the culture of that day, there were considered to be many gods. There was, there was much occultism and spiritism, uh, the worship of many deities, both in mythology uh, the old mythology that was hundreds or even thousands of years old, and in the day-to-day -day, uh, gossip and, well, did you hear about this kind of thing that, that would go on, people would talk about um, people with unusual powers. And so now Pilate, who has already to some extent been impressed by Jesus, I, I cannot, Pilate did not become a believer here, but it seems very clear to me that in some ways he was very impressed by Jesus. Jesus was not your run-of-the-mill ordinary man. No one that ever had more than a passing con uh, contact with Jesus ever, could ever say he was just an ordinary man. And, and Pilate has had some very unusual uh, interchanges with, with Jesus up to this point. 
And so the, he's probably getting a little uneasy. He's, he, well, what if this is more than just an ordinary man? But in his uneasiness, and now we'll read verse 8. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 9. Uh, Pilate, well, let's just read verse 9. So Pilate uh, heard this statement, he was afraid, and then verse 9. He entered into the praetorium, again, which was the, the praetorium was the area where the Roman guard was stationed. So he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Seems a logical thing, doesn't it? We have this, this very unusual man. Well, maybe if I could find out his origin, that would be helpful. Where are you from? But it's also a show of authority. It's a play of authority. And so he, rather than admit his, his unease and his nervousness, he pulls out uh, his authority. But Jesus replies, not a word. And so in verse 10, Pilate says to Jesus, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to crucify you? I'm, I'm sorry, I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. Pilate again, exercising his authority, says, you realize that uh, I'm the one that can release you or I'm the one that can crucify you. And Jesus says something again that totally upends Pilate. He says, your authority is only an authority that has been given to you. And there are others who have committed the greater sin. And, and of course, there are, he's referring to the Jewish leaders who are actively seeking to twist judgment. Up to this point, Pilate has not sought to twist judgment. Pilate has not sought uh, to uh, exercise justice um, for his own uh, benefit or in a corrupt way. But he also, he's obviously very fearful of unrest. He's very fearful of losing control of the situation. He certainly is not a believer and he has no interest in submitting himself to Christ, but he doesn't either want to see an innocent man crucified. And so now we come to uh, verses 12 and 13 where Pilate says, as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. So at this point, uh, Pilate continues to try to release him. It doesn't say what that consisted of. It doesn't say if he went out and said, you know, we should not do anything to him. Uh, it doesn't say if he consulted with some other authorities. It just says he made efforts in some way to have him released. But then the Jews pull out their last card, the sedition card. They have been unable to prove that Jesus has done anything against the government. He has committed nothing illegal. He has hurt no one. He has robbed no one. He has slandered nobody. He has not urged rebellion against Caesar. They have demonstrated absolutely nothing. 
But they pull out the idea that, well, you know, there is talk about this. And if this kind of talk comes to Caesar, you do realize, of course, that he takes a very dim view of these things. And so their insinuations convince a man, a career politician, a bureaucrat, with no convictions about Jesus, to do what for him is expedient. And so he decides to pronounce a sentence. And when he does that, he comes out to the place where he would officially pronounce a sentence, which was on that pavement. Uh, evidently there, there was a seat, uh, a, a kind of a judgment seat. It was an official place. It wasn't something that you would um, run up and... Uh, it wasn't quite a throne, but it wasn't a place where any ordinary person would dare to just go and sit. It wasn't a place where you would rest and, and uh, uh, eat a bag of chips. It wasn't that kind of a place. It was, the, it was a place where reserved for official pronouncements. And so he makes a pronouncement, and here it comes, verses 13 through 15. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, about tw uh, which means uh, since the hours were counted from, from, um, from dawn, uh, roughly noon, about 12 o'clock. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. They therefore cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So then he delivered him to them to be crucified. And in their hatred of the one who said that he was the son of God, they did something that was unthinkable for a loyal Jew. They had accepted the sovereignty of Caesar by force. They had no choice. It was be destroyed or submit to Caesar. It was die or obey Caesar. But the Jews continued to look forward to the Messiah. And at least with their mouths, they stated that God was their king. And yet, so intense was their hatred of Jesus that they willingly said, we have no king but Caesar. And so they sold themselves. They sold a doctrine that they had been holding for hundreds of years right down the river. It meant nothing to them if they could just get rid of Jesus. So remarkable things happen in this text. But what I want us to, to look at today, and, and I think as we examine a little bit more, what we'll see is that this terrible injustice, the evil that led to Jesus' death, as John writes about it, all these things actually bear witness. They're actually proof that he is who he said he was. He was the very son of God. And that this, these things that happened actually were working, not only the plan of God, but they were working for our salvation and for our good. 
I mentioned that to me, it's the, the phrase, uh, the Son of God is very important uh, to John. And, and I, you probably already know that, but I'm just going to remind you. If we look quickly at John 1.14, um, well, John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, that is the Son of God, full of grace and truth. We then have uh, Jesus' famous con conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, 16 and 17. This is at the heart of the gospel that John is writing about. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. And then we have John's uh, theme, his, his thesis, uh, thesis statement. And some of you who've taken composition classes quite frequently, they tell you, you should get your, get your theme there, get, you know, say what you want to say, get it in there really early in the document. Well, John puts it close to the end. He spends uh, the whole time developing this idea, and he states it explicitly. This is what John was aiming at, okay? This is the aim of his gospel. He says lots of things, but this is what was most important to him. So John 20, uh, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, it says, Many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, that is, the things, the signs, the acts of Jesus, the things which he did, these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Not only believing a statement about what kind of a being he is. He is the Son of God. He's, he's, not, uh, he's not created. Uh, he is the very Son of the Creator. But that when you believe that, it would actually lead to your salvation. So that is John's purpose. That is his burden in writing his gospel. But a secondary theme for John, and it starts right away in John 1, 1 also, and we see it developed here in, in John 18 and 19, is that there's this big question, and it's the question that uh, Paul also, it just bothered him terribly. If Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, if God loved his people, if God cared about the Jews, why have they rejected him? Doesn't that throw doubt on the gospel? And it was a very bothersome thing too, I think, to John. Because remember, John was a Jew and he sees his own people rejecting. But notice here, uh, John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. There was the true light, that is, Jesus, the Son of God, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who, who were his own did not receive him. And so Jesus, uh, John, as he comes to John chapter 18 and 19, is showing how, uh, the, what, the, what the Jewish people were doing. They were rejecting the very Son of God. So when uh, John takes us through the, Jesus' um, encounters with Pilate, 
he makes us see something about Jesus. He uses this language of above and below. Notice uh, in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up. But my kingdom is not of this realm. His kingdom is above. It is not of this world. Um, Jesus in verse 37 says, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world. A clear reference to the fact that he was preexistent. He existed before. He came from above and he came down into this world. And then in Jesus' um, short conversation with Pilate in John 19.11, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. So we have Jesus who comes from above, and we have this world and the things that it's doing. And John is saying that the Jewish people had rejected the kingdom that is above, of above, and they, had, they were simply uh, living as fallen men. Rejecting God's grace. They had to deny something that he said several times. And, and with, because of time, I'm not going to take us to these texts. But just a couple examples of, of uh, where the Jews, very early on in Jesus' ministry, become uh, infuriated. In fact, they come, become infuriated to the point of wanting to stone him. Of wanting to stone him. Uh, and that is in John 5.18 and 8.58. And Jesus, who loved his people, uh, was at the point of being stoned by them. It wasn't the right time. God prevented that from happening. And the question is, why would they do this? And it just kept jumping out of me. Why would they do that? These are people who have been very blessed um, Paul says in Romans that God still has a plan for the Jews. He still, there's going to come a time when the fullness of the Jews will come in to his kingdom. But yet at this point, they were rejecting their Messiah. And so uh, Jesus, uh, in John in, in John chapter 12, verse uh, 36, I'm sorry, John chapter 12, verse 37. Okay. John 12, 37, though Jesus had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this cause they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. A very powerful text. Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. And so I take us back to where John gets that quote from. It would seem then that God is unjust. It would seem that these are people that perhaps really wanted God, but God made them reject him. That these were people who, who were really open and they just wanted God's will. But God, in some unjust way, forced them to sin. But when we look at uh, how, how the quote develops in, in Isaiah 
chapter 6, because this is where it's found, Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, this is where God is calling Isaiah to go to his people and preach. And so Isaiah 6, 8, Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive. Their ears dull, their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes. Hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. How does God's truth harden hearts? Well, you know, truth doesn't harden hearts that receive it, does it? But the rejection of the truth leads to ever yet greater hardness. Isn't that interesting? When we hear truth and we continue to reject it, we don't stay in a neutral position. When we reject truth, our hearts become harder and harder and harder. Scripture says God tempts no one to sin. God forces no one to sin. God manipulates no one to make them sin. But yet, unless he touches in a special way, when we hear truth, just get harder and harder. And this is what was happening here. In this text, and if we look at John, all of John 18, we look at uh, Judas. We, well, what we, what we see here is that we see just tremendous evil. We see a reality of evil. Uh, and we see an evil which God tempted no one to do. God did not tempt anybody to do these sins. He manipulated no one so that they would become evil. The betrayal of Judas, the denials of Peter, the lies of the priests and the consul, the cowardness, the cowardice of Pilate, the bloodthirsty cries of the mob, each person did exactly what they wished to do, what they wanted to do, what was in their hearts, and what their motives made them want to do. They sought their own, and they were aiming to get it. And yet at the same time, notice Jesus' statement in 1911. God was in control, and completely opposite to each evil actor's intentions, he was carrying out his plan. Peter later on uh, in Acts 2 says, uh, you, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, did exactly what you wanted to do. I'm paraphrasing. You did exactly what you wanted to do. And yet, it brought about salvation. It brought about justification from sin. So Jesus is pointing that out to Pilate. And what I want to do as we, as we look at the significance of this is take us to, as I was looking at this, I, I thought, this is a long, you know, the, the account of Jesus on the cross is quite short. It is in all the Gospels. Uh, the, the percentage of time that talks about Jesus on the cross is, is a fraction of the time spent and all the stuff that went on getting him there. 
and the statement where he he draws where he he says it is finished and draws his last breath is only one verse in our preaching we rightly preach Christ crucified we rightly preach Christ resurrected but when he died he said it is finished there was a process that was going on there. And as I was thinking about that whole process of betrayal, of rejection, of scourging, I realized that Jesus was in the process of dying, in the process of being rejected. Well, he was in the process of being rejected his entire life, but he was in the process of, of dying for many hours before he actually breathed his last. It really, it really just kind of arrested my thought, and I thought, that's really, that's really interesting. And um, so I, I went back and I looked at Isaiah chapter 53. So we're going to look at that, and, and uh, something very powerful about uh, who Jesus is and what that means for, for our salvation. So Isaiah uh, 50, actually start in Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52, 14, just as many were astonished at you, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. How much of what John prophesies was fulfilled on the cross and how much of it was fulfilled in the run-up to the cross? Isaiah 52, 14. His appearance was marred. Was it the crown of thorns? Doesn't, doesn't say. Verse uh, 53, 3. Despised and forsaken. Treated like a criminal. Kicked and pushed and brutalized. He was forsaken. His own disciples ran away. Peter denied him. And this is before the cross. Verse 5. He was wounded. He was crushed. He was scourged. 
And that happened before the cross too. Verse 7, he opened not his mouth. Notice that he said nothing in his own defense. He spoke, but not a word in his own defense. I kept thinking about that. And I thought about Jesus in his glorified body and how Thomas said, unless I see the marks in his hands and and the mark of the spear in his side, I won't believe. And then I indulged in a question for which I have no answer and the scripture doesn't say. But I think it's pretty clear that Jesus in his glorified body, had those marks. Did he have the marks of the scourging? Were there scars on his head from the crown of thorns? I'm not trying to make a doctrine here. I'm just asking the question. Jesus, who is glorified, who is going to reign forever, who is sovereign over all, who will return, does his beauty Does his perfection include bearing the scars? One would think so when we look at Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, where John says, where John observes that the question was asked, who is worthy to open the scroll? And I saw one who looked as like a lamb who was slain. And that was the one that was worthy to open And so, Isaiah, by the inspiration of the Spirit, looking forward, foresees this entire complex of events that leads up to the cross, and he sees redemptive significance. I think everything that he suffered has redemptive significance for us. We rightly preach that the gospel is the gospel of the forgiveness of sin. But we also preach, because it is also biblical, that we are in a process of transformation. And it just made me think, if if Jesus, if it pleased God that Jesus, who is glorious in his glorious, in his glorified body, bear scars that certainly remind us of his grace. That we who uh, are scarred, we who, as we look at this text, we see um, sorrows, we see scars, uh, we see uh, lack of peace, we see uh, conflict as the consequence of, of how we have lived and what others have done to us. Because sin, after all, is sin we do and we repent of our sin. But the whole world is under the dominion, under the judgment of God because we all are sinners. And there are scars in my life because of my sin. There are scars in my life because of the sin of others. And certainly, Isaiah found comfort in this awful event where Jesus bore our sins, the sins that 
he did not deserve to bear, but that he did bear in obedience to his Father and in love for us. And if anything, it, it made me reflect on how the how we continue to live in this life until we're called to glory, until we, we, we pass away and we go to be with him or until Jesus' second coming. Uh, that, that the very Son of God who became flesh took on himself our sin, but he also took on himself our sin in such a way as to start to give us hope and to see changes in our life and even to see us able to bear up under the weight of things that we have done that we're never going to be totally undone. Perhaps relationships we have broken, uh, habits and vices that we have uh, indulged in and they leave an effect. But none of that is victorious over the Christian. But we often do carry with us a remembrance of those things. And so this Jesus uh, brings us a salvation that is, that is complete. It's a salvation that, uh, that is, deals with the root of sin and it deals with the consequences of sin. And just as in, in, in my case where I, I can look back and see uh, things I've said to people, things I've done, uh, habits I've had, and to some extent they still affect me. But I also am aware that by God's grace, I'm not who I used to be. And I think for each one of us, uh, regardless of to what extent we, we may have sunk, uh, there is hope. And, and that hope is a hope that continues and it increases and it intensifies. Even as we, uh, each day of our life and even as we move towards being with him. The Jews said, he said he is the Son of God. They hated him for it. But it's precisely because the Son of God came. And it's precisely because of their evil and their lies in having him crucified that God worked such a great work for us. We should rejoice in that.